Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to the Quadcast, a Yale Divinity School podcast. In our fifth episode, Christian and Jewish leaders weigh in on the state of interreligious relations today. Graduate student Emily Judd conducts the interview with Yale Divinity professor and Baptist minister Greg Mobley and Rabbi Orr Rose of Hebrew College. Professor Mobley explains how the interfaith movement began. Unfortunately, it takes a world catastrophe to get people to be interested in learning about each other. And Rabbi Rose explains why interfaith work must continue in this generation. People from a wide variety of religious and cultural traditions are now interacting with one another in ways that are mostly unprecedented in human history. Surprising personal interfaith encounters will be shared. And Yossi said to us, he says, you Christians, why don't you just try to do what your teaching is and love both sides? Why don't you love Palestinians and love Israelis? And insights are shared on the question, if there is one God, why so many religions? What I am sure of as person that is committed to Judaism is that God is greater than any single religion. Welcome, Professor Mobley and Rabbi Orr Rose. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks. So the first week of February marked World Interfaith Harmony Week, an initiative founded by the United Nations in 2010 to promote interreligious dialogue. Where did the interfaith movement come from? When did it really take off, Professor Mobley? Unfortunately, it takes a world catastrophe to get people to be interested in learning about each other. Jewish-Christian dialogue began in earnest after the Holocaust, when Christians became uh, painfully aware of the anti-Semitism that's just lodged in Christianity and then took this virulent expression during Nazism. And at the same time, it was 9-11 that uh, inspired Christians to enter into Muslim-Christian dialogue with a sense that we were too far apart and couldn't understand each other, and that was the catalyst, the, the catastrophe. I would just also add that I think it's important that we try to unearth other stories of cooperation, of mutual learning of instances throughout our histories when individuals or groups of people have worked together for the common good, for growth, for vitality, creativity. And I think that's a part of the scholarship of interfaith or interreligious studies is to share those stories to help inspire and guide us today. And both of you edited a powerful book that I just finished called My Neighbor's Faith, in which prominent religious thinkers and leaders tell personal stories of interreligious encounter and transformation. The title, My Neighbor's Faith, particularly rings true to my experience growing up in a Catholic family and living next to a Jewish rabbi and his family. Why did you both decide on that title? I thought that came from our editor. Did Or did you come up with it, Or? I don't remember the exact dynamic of how we came to the final title. There were a few conversations. But one other remark related to that is that in the choice of that title, we attempted to articulate that in this age of globalization 
and in particular in the United States and Canada, from which we drew the stories, people from a wide variety of religious and cultural traditions are now interacting with one another in ways that are mostly unprecedented in human history. And so the religious other is not someone that lives at a distance from you or even lives in the same town, village, or city, but in a different part of that city. The ghettoization of different groups um, has changed significantly. And of course, part of that are the ways in which people are interacting both in person and virtually, and all of the ways in which people can travel and encounter different religions and cultures around the world. Rabbi Rose, what's the most surprising interfaith encounter that you have had? That is a good question. I can't pick one in the moment, but I can share, since we're doing this interview at the Yale Divinity School, that the story that I wrote about in my neighbor's faith is about my relationship with the late William Sloan Coffin. Coffin, of course, was uh, a chaplain at Yale and was a remarkable preacher and social activist. And I had the good fortune of meeting him late in life. And he was a very powerful mentor for me. And we were at very different stages of life, of course. And he was in a season of giving over uh, in his latter years and sharing of his wisdom. And it was incredibly powerful for me uh, to hear his stories and to learn about all of the people that he engaged with in various efforts for peace and justice, including prominent leaders from the Jewish community. Professor Mobley, what about you? What's the most shocking or astonishing interfaith moment that you've had? I also wrote about it in My Neighbor's Faith. It is when I was talking to uh, a rabbi friend, and I, with a kind of excitement, I was saying, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated with the sense that Judaism can imagine a God who needs our help. That is, as if there's some vulnerability in God. And there are ideas in Kabbalah that about tikkun olam, about restoring the broken vessels and the light to God. And the rabbi said to me, you don't have a tradition of the vulnerability of God? What about the baby Jesus? And all my life, of course, there he was, right in front of me for weeks every year, literally <laughs> in front of me, a, a moment where God was totally vulnerable. God needed help, care, nurture. And yet, it did strike me, theologically, we don't do much, if anything, with that idea. So it's where I saw the possibility of interfaith learning pointing out to me things that are hidden in my own faith, but I couldn't see. One moment that I had last year, which was shocking, a shocking interfaith encounter, uh, if I can share in return. <laughs> uh, I was here studying, and I met a visiting doctoral student from another country, and we quickly became friends. We met every week. We had deep conversations, you know, talked all about our, our past, our childhood, 
our present challenges at Yale and our future impossible goals and dreams. And throughout these conversations, I was sharing all about my Catholic faith because that's the lens through which I view past, present, um, future. And he never shared his faith. So I thought, oh, he must not have a religion if he's not sharing it. And about three months in, he blurts out, there's a lull in a conversation. We were walking by Woolsey Hall downtown. And he said, do you know I'm Muslim? And I had no idea. And I said so. And I said, no, are you practicing? And he said, yeah, I'm devout. And I couldn't understand why anyone would uh, not talk about their faith if it's so important um, in their lives. And he said that as a um, Muslim, he doesn't feel comfortable sharing it with other people when he doesn't know how they'll react. And so that changed my whole outlook on what it means to be a religious minority. And our friendship really took off from there. And we shared all the similarities between Catholicism and and Islam. But I think some of the most important interfaith moments are the spontaneous ones where they kind of come out of nowhere. (laughs) Absolutely. And what you just described too, though, um, confirms something that Orr and I have discovered. Uh, The best interfaith moments come in relationship. it comes because you actually get to know the person, m- maybe in your case, before you even know their religion. Mm-hmm. And then once you have that trust, then you can share what's on the inside. Yeah, in most interfaith work, official interfaith work, brings together open, non-exclusive, non-combative people from various religions while the people whose cooperation is most needed, the exclusivists, aren't part of the conversation. So what can be done to kind of push the frontier out to the territories where the conversations are the hardest? Fundamental to interreligious work is the fact that we will disagree about important issues, that we will have different understandings of ultimate reality and the ways to try and live into the teachings and the wisdom of our traditions. And so I think if we are explicit about that, and that interfaith is not seen simply as an activity for people that want to agree and want to affirm, but also are willing to engage across differences, real differences, then perhaps more people will be interested in the conversation. And Professor Mobley, what is a practical way that the average American can engage in interfaith work? The most practical way is to get to know your neighbor. And because as Orr said, and as your, as your introduction of yourself as a Catholic family living next to the rabbi and the rabbi's family, Pluralism is increasingly just the texture of modern life. And the best basis for interreligious understanding is just a barbecue or the kids playing together or um, living in peace. I really think it's a, 
it's a fact. I hardly know a family anymore that doesn't have a an in-law or outlaw from another culture who has now been grafted into the family. And so the the issue is to just get to know on a personal level the variety of people that are all around us. I think that's the most practical thing. And should a person have a religious affiliation to do interreligious work? Does a person have to be on one religion's team to participate in the game of interfaith? I don't believe so. I think anyone that's interested in learning about the mystery, the grandeur, the beauty of life and of humanity should engage with people that live similarly and differently. And I think that's not only a a cornerstone of the interfaith impulse, but also of the American democracy that we live in. Again, I think sometimes we are surprised when we encounter people with whom we disagree, who are substantively different than we are in terms of belief or practice or political affiliation. And I think learning how to hold that tension with uh, greater understanding, flexibility, grace, without simply saying, yes, we agree, uh, or papering over difference is an important skill. Um, so I think that the tent should be wide open. Do you think, Professor Mobley, that someone who identifies as an atheist would be able to lead interfaith dialogue between Christians and Jewish people, let's say, would, do you think that they would still have that credibility to lead the dialogue? Well, this is a, a great moment because now I get to express some difference from or. Sure, everyone's welcome, but often I like to think of it that there's something called interfaith service and interfaith learning. In interfaith service, people from different backgrounds come together to do good works, to rally around a cause. Interfaith learning is where I bring my deep acquaintance with a practice and a style of spirituality, and you bring your practice, and then we mutually inform each other. So an atheist, if an atheist could be articulate about how they make meaning, what are the rituals that keep them grounded, how have they marked the major turning points of their life in community with others, that would be great. But I do think when I'm in interreligious dialogue, I want someone who has a thick practice and a deep knowledge because they're going to be the most informed. In My Neighbor's Faith, Professor Paul Knitter of Union Theological Seminary asks, if there is one God, why so many religions? Rabbi Rose, what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) The most honest answer is that I don't know, but I try and live in such a way that I am open to learning about, as I said before, the mystery, the grandeur, and the beauty of life from people that are practicing and believing in different ways. What I am sure of as a person that is committed to Judaism 
is that God is greater than any single religion, and that my experience of the divine and my religious life is but one pathway. And I think it's a beautiful pathway, but it's not the only one. And so I feel called to be in conversation with people from other religious and cultural backgrounds and to try and learn as much as I can. There are things, too, that I want to share that I'm proud of from the Jewish tradition, but I want to do so both with confidence and humility. So I want to... I'm working on a metaphor to try to answer your question, Emily. It's a beautiful question. And it has something to do with a rainbow because light comes from an external source, the sun. It encounters in our atmosphere moisture. As a result, on the ground, then we see this spectrum of colors. But it's a single light, but in our atmosphere, and then based on our actual location on the planet Earth, we see violet or green or yellow. So I don't know. I don't. I don't think. I like that metaphor a lot. That's what I'm looking for. I don't know the science well enough. But that's why I think we have so many different um, images. Because I'm just like Orr, to use Paul Tillich's language, I believe the God I believe is really real is a God beyond God. Uh, On the other hand, I am happy for the God I've seen. And, but I know there's far more. God is greater. And Professor Mobley, you led a trip to Jerusalem over the winter break with a group of Yale Divinity School students. Do you see a path to religious tolerance and understanding in the Middle East? And I would love to hear, obviously, Rabbi Rose, what you think as well. It's a fascinating question. I think in many ways in Israel, there is religious toleration, religious tolerance. That is, despite the tensions and conflicts among Arabs and Jews, and Palestinians, thank God, it seems to me for the most part, it's not religious in nature. I think there's great respect because of the almost cradle um, affiliation, uh, brotherhood, fraternity between ideas in Judaism and Islam. Uh, there is respect for each other's faith. I think the the, the larger questions are about Uh, social conflicts, and boy, that's tough territory. But I will say this. I uh, met two people there that were part of a group of bereaved parents, and one was Palestinian and one was Israeli, and both had lost children in the conflict. And they said they've given up on waiting for the politicians on either side to come up with a solution because the politicians had self-interest in maintaining their power, whatever it was, whether it's in the PA or whether it is in the Israeli government, and that they were just connecting person to person, Palestinian to Israeli, seeking reconciliation. And that gave me great hope. I would add that 
I sometimes feel like an optimist against my better judgment because the situation in Israel and the Palestinian territories and the ongoing conflict has been terrible, crushing to so many people. But to carry on from what Greg just said, I've made a choice to try and invest my time and my energy and my financial contributions in individuals and organizations that are trying to mobilize for a peaceful and just solution. And those are the people that give me hope. Do you think there's any specific teachings in each of your traditions or verses that could be applied or, you know, the motto for for peace in the Middle East? So I have a great, I have a story about that. So um, an Israeli, an American Israeli journalist I, I really admire is named Yossi Klein Halevi. And he was speaking to a group of of us who were Christian clergy who were in Israel to study the conflict and Judaism. And Yossi said to us, he says, you Christians, why don't you just try to do what your teaching is and love both sides? Why don't you love Palestinians and love Israelis? Because uh, love for neighbor, even love for enemy is supposed to be a hallmark of Christianity. Why don't you practice it instead of choosing sides? The basic teaching for me that I try and carry in heart and mind as I go about my work uh, comes from the book of Genesis, in which we learn that every human being is created in the image of the divine. And that is true of every human being. Unfortunately, over the centuries, religious texts have been used in a variety of ways. It's important to state that both for good and for ill. And we know that texts come alive in the hands and mouths of interpreters. And so to piggyback on what Greg just said, um, not only do we need to speak sacred words, but our actions have to follow suit. And we need to recognize that there'll be people from our own traditions and other traditions that may try and use the very same texts for different ends. Professor Greg Mobley and Rabbi Orrose, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This was a really interesting experience. Thank you, Emily. Thanks.